Well, good morning. It is a true honor and privilege to be able to come and to open God's Word with you all this morning. And I trust that your heart, like mine, has been lifted up. I, I could not help but just think for a few moments as, um, as I was sitting there listening to the music and participating in the music that such excellent um, music and fanfare is reserved only for the royalty where we minister. Um, but they are unworthy of it. Um, but our Savior is not. He is worthy of all praise and all excellence as we gather and praise His name this morning. Let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together in, in the Word. Our Father, we're so grateful for the tremendous opportunity that we have to gather together in this place and to praise Your name and to meditate on Your goodness, to meditate on Your works and remember the deeds of the Lord, Your wonders of old, and to lift our hearts, our minds, our words to You in praise. And now, Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would minister to our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would rebuke us, correct us, challenge us, help us to change by the power of your Holy Spirit working through the word for the glory of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 77. This is where we're going to be. And... Um, this may be a little bit of a different message from what many missionaries present. Um, this is a, something I, a burden on my heart that I'd like to share with you uh, about how the Lord has worked in, in Danielle and I's hearts and lives uh, through this passage and combined with some testimony of what we have seen him do in our time serving in the UK. Um, but this passage is addressed to those who are discouraged, those who are struggling with discouragement, depression, sadness, grief, loss, and we all have walked through those times. Some of us have felt that more acutely than others as we have suffered some loss, loss of a loved one, loss of a, a spouse even, or a child. Um, Disappointment in, in some, and how a plan didn't work out the way that we thought it might. And we find ourselves kind of grieving and confused and discouraged. And this situation is where we find the psalmist this morning. He is struggling with a little bit of depression. Things haven't worked out quite the way that he had hoped. And his world has been turned upside down a little bit. And what we want to consider this morning is not how to avoid times of discouragement, but to have the right response in those times. We will inevitably, in our walk with God, in our journey with Him, have some of those times where we walk through those valleys that are very difficult. And our, what we want to do is to have the right response to it, a, a Christ-glorifying response. So the setting that we have here is we don't we don't have a lot to say about it. We don't know exactly what is going on in the psalmist's life. We, we you can see here if you look at your text that it is a psalm of Asaph. 
He is a, he existed, he lived in David's day, a leader of a choir. He has 11 psalms that are attributed to him. Some commentators might think that although it may not be he who wrote this, we, we, several times in Scripture it talks about the sons of Asaph, and maybe it was somebody after him who wrote it in a similar style. That's possible. But we really don't have any context in which to put this psalm as, as what was going on, the particular circumstances in his life, which in the Holy Spirit's wisdom is, is so helpful because then it's so portable to each of our circumstances and, and can really help us. But for Asaph, as we read him, as we read the psalms that he wrote, he wrote two psalms that are, could be categorized as psalms of praise, one of thanksgiving, three of wisdom, and six of lament. Spurgeon said that Asaph was a man of an exercised mind and often touched with the minor key. He was thoughtful, contemplative, believing, but with all there was a dash of sadness about him, and this imparted a tonic flavor to his songs. That there is a little bit, as you read him, there's, he, he, he's not as exuberant as David might be. He, he has felt some of the sting and the disappointments of life, and he writes about that in his Psalms. And I think it can be very helpful for us this morning. So let's begin. In, in the first stanza there, you, you see, as Brian mentioned, the, the stanzas are divided by the word Selah. And so the first three verses make up the first stanza. It says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. So there's a pause there. So immediately what the psalmist does is he cries out to God. In the time of that discouragement, in the time of distress and trouble, what he does is he immediately cries out to God. Verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. That's his instinct, that's his response. And he continually cries out to God. We see that in verse 2, that, that in the day of my trouble, the daytime, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out. The idea here is he's stretching out his hand in a plea to the Lord. He's doing that without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. He is looking to God for help immediately and continually as he is struggling through this difficulty. And desperately, when I remember God, I moan. He wants the satisfaction that only God can give. Nothing else will satisfy him. He wants the Lord to bring him peace. He's turning away from everything else, and he's looking to God for deliverance. He knows that only God can make sense of his situation. Only God can bring him the clarity and the peace that his heart, which is hurting, is desiring. So he's in one of these difficult moments where he's grieving, and he cries out to God. And I think we just need to pause there for a moment and consider this example uh, and our own responses in times of grief and trouble and distress and discouragement. What do we cry out to? Do we cry aloud to God immediately? You know, it should never cease to amaze us that we can turn to God, our Creator, 
the maker and sustainer of all things in the midst of our trouble, that we have somehow in our unworthiness and our sinfulness and our brokenness, we have access to God through what Christ has done for us, that we can enter boldly into that throne room of grace and find help in our time of need. That we can bring our troubles, that we can bring our hurts and heartaches to God. And He hears us. People yearn to be heard. Think of all the human endeavors that go on in order that, that people's voices can be heard. The times that, that we see different lobbyist groups buy out uh, television airtime in order that they can make their complaint heard before people. Sometimes on Saturdays when we, are, we, in, we drive through London at times, and we will pass this one spot near Parliament, and inevitably there is always people out there, the th- hundreds, sometimes thousands of people, with their placards, with their megaphones, marching around in order that they can make their complaints known to man, known to people, known to the government. They are endeavoring to make their voices heard, but we as believers, we have access to God immediately through Jesus, that we can, we can cry out to God. But we don't often do this. We struggle, and we like to turn to others in the midst of our distress. We like to turn to a, a, someone who is going to tell us what we want to hear. We like to turn to social media some of us, and immediately when something uh, negative has happened to us, we want to make sure that everyone knows, and we post our complaints so that man can hear. We cry aloud to man instead of crying out to God. Sometimes we deny the issue, we stifle it, we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to deal with it, we don't cry out to God, we ignore it. But here the psalmist's reaction is a pattern for us. He cries out to God. And as we come to the end of verse 3, it feels like the author here takes a little bit of a breath. He pauses for a moment. He, he awaits that relief. He, he's in trouble. He's hurting. He's struggling. He cries out to God. And now he is waiting for God to answer. And he's met with that silence. God does not answer immediately. And we come to verse 4, and we see that you must, like the psalmist, you must open your heart to him. Verse 4 says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So here we can kind of see the depth of his hurt, the depth of his complaint. He is sleepless. That's how much he's hurting. He cannot sleep. And furthermore, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. He doesn't know how to pray. He, he doesn't know how to respond here. He's, he's hurting. And you can feel a little bit here that he's, he's jabbing at God. That he's, there's a little bit of an accusatory note. That God, you are holding my eyelids open. That you are preventing me from having the relief that I'm asking for. In verse 5, it says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, 
Let, my, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So in that moment, as he is lying there sleepless at night, he begins to remember how good the days of old were, how good he had it, and what he has lost. Let me, he remembers a song in the night when there were times before in his life that the nighttime he was singing, that it was a time of rejoicing because he had been so blessed in some way. And he's reviewing that loss. He is turning inward. And that introspection had kind of almost cyclically driving him deeper into a discouragement. And it's like his emotions come to a bursting point here, that as he considers what the difficulty that he is in and how the Lord is not responding to him in the way that he wants, and all of this is kind of bubbling up inside of him at that moment, then we come to verse 7, and, and we have these very quick questions where he is honestly and openly voicing his heart to God. And it, to be honest, I, I, when you read it, when, when we read it, it almost feels like you're witnessing something that's a little bit awkward. Like sometimes when there, a, a couple is having a disagreement right in front of you and you're not sure what to, oh, you know, that he is, he is saying these things to God. Look at what he says. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable. Will God ignore me forever? Is He done? Has He forgotten me? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Has that enduring, steadfast love, has it now stopped? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has the God who keeps promises now decided not to keep them anymore? He's, so, he's accusing God here. He's being very open with how He feels with the Lord. Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Maybe it's just that God forgot, is what He's saying. Psalmist is opening his heart to the Lord and unloading his cares on Him. And it is not wrong to be honest with the Lord. It is not wrong to bring your doubts to the Lord. It is the best place to bring them. And what is encouraging here is that the Lord is big enough to take them. As he speaks, as the psalmist speaks here so emotionally, I don't think that he's intellectually doubting any of these things, but the reality of what he feels at this moment is this, is what he's saying here. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where the, the raw emotion is unsettling and that we are confused with what to do. Uh, in our time in England, we have uh, had many funerals in the church that we participated in, um, that we were members of, from people all over the world. And we have found that, you know, funerals are different in every culture. And some of the cultures, when it comes time for the, the body to leave the, the building, it is the correct thing in their culture to wail uncontrollably to lose all restraint and to fall out on the floor crying. And for some of us, a little more reserved maybe, that's so startling to see. 
and just don't know how to deal with it. You don't know how to help or what to say or what to do. It's just we're overwhelmed by that raw display of emotion. But God is not overwhelmed by it. As you feel things, as we feel things so acutely and difficultly in our hearts, God is, is big enough to hold us and to accept those emotions. And so what the psalmist here, what he's doing is he is honestly bearing his feelings, opening his heart to the Lord. And we're not sure, like I mentioned, that we're not sure what it is that he is dealing with. But to him, it feels big. He's not sure what's next for him. Everything is up in the air around him. His world has been shaken. His heart is shaken. He's confused. He's hurt. He's disappointed. He's sad. He's grieving. And whatever is going on for him in his life, it feels like he is falling, and he's just reaching out for something to hold on to, something stable that he can put his feet on and, and try and make sense of what's going on. You know, and when was the last time maybe that you have felt like this? That just life has hit you with such a curveball that, wow, it's just hard for you to, to understand what God is doing. That struggling to sleep, struggling with discouragement, struggling to pray. You know, there were a few times on our journey with the Lord that we felt this way. Where we have said, you know, God, what are you doing? I'm so confused. This is not how things were supposed to work out. You know, we, uh, just as, as a testimony, we, a few months before we left for England in 2017, just a few months before we left, uh, we received a phone call that the, the uh, place that we were intending to minister and the family that we were intending to minister with, that we had been planning on joining for six years, had resigned. And that opening for ministry with that family was, was no longer available. So we made a, Danielle and I made a quick trip to England to, to look at, well, we're, we're moving. We, we've raised all our support. We have the plane tickets and things. Where, where are we going to go? And we thought, again, that we could still go to that same place of ministry, the same church, and work there. But just about two weeks before we left, the Lord closed that door. And so we really had no idea where we were going to go. Five years on deputation. We're all ready to go. We're ready to say, okay, Lord, use us. We're, we're, we're equipped, and we are funded and supported, and we're ready to go, and now we have no idea where we're going. This is, it was one of those moments. God, what are you doing? We get there. We, we get started. We um, talked to some friends. We found a little church that was needing a pastor. Um, they had been looking for a pastor for a few years, and we thought this is a good place for us to kind of just get introduced to ministry and, and to serve. And they only had six people, an elderly congregation. And I, started, I visited. They asked me to come and speak. I started speaking. Uh, we started a, a three-month trial period where I'd take all the services, and we started a, a Wednesday night um, prayer time together with just these six individuals. And um, things were going well. We were excited. Okay, Lord, now, now this is where you want us. And then we, one Sunday, we come in and they, they tell us that, Clay, we want you to go. This is not the place for you. 
Okay, I'm no Pastor Reamers, Pastor Brian, or Pastor Chris. I'm not at that caliber. But look, you don't have a lot of options here. You know, you don't have any funding for anybody. Um, why? What is it that 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 you want us to go? And again, we're thinking, oh, that was that was hurtful. We cried over that, and we said, God, what are you doing? We have in our time there. We have watched our family back here in the states pass away and go through deaths. And Danielle's mother went through cancer. And that was, we were able to be here for some of that, and, but not all of it. And again, we, we asked the Lord, you know, what is going on, Lord? What is, can we continue to trust you? Maybe one of the most stinging things that we had was um, as we were working through some of the doctrinal stuff, good friends of ours in the church kind of came out against us, betrayed us, shouted at us while I was preaching. And then after the service, shouted at us that we need to leave the church. And again, we went home and we wept, Lord, what are you doing? What's going on here? And what do you do in these moments, some of these difficult times of discouragement and, and loss and confusion? And there are times when you're in this situation and you're feeling that, that surprise and pain. And some of you have felt things that are much, you know, weathered some deeper storms than that. But what do you do in these times? There are times when you feel this way that it is good, it is right, it is proper for you to go and take your Bible and open it up and to read and just allow the Lord to calm your heart. And that is good and that's right. But that's not what the psalmist does here. The psalmist, it's almost like he reaches for another book. He reaches for something else that maybe was still kept on his nightstand, that was still, uh, you know, right there on top of his desk. And he reaches for his journal, or he reaches for his scrapbook, or for some of us, he reaches for his MacBook, and he scrolls back in his photo feed, and he begins to review what the Lord has done in his heart and in his life in times past. That's that's what it... That's how the the text shifts. Look at it in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. This is the turning point in the psalm where the psalmist, it's almost like his focus changes. He's looking at something else now. And almost by writing down these words or saying those questions, he sees the absurdity of them, and he begins to reflect on who God is. He begins to remember God. Is he still in the muck and mire of despair? Yes, he is. Is he still in grief and sadness? Yes, he is, but there is a shift in his focus. You can see it in the shift of the pronouns from the first nine verses to what we have following. He begins to remember God. Look at verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Remember, ponder, meditate. In our outline, it says that we are to remember God. And actually, you know, that may be not a better word would be that we need to remind ourselves of who God is and what He has done. 
Because that's what the psalmist is doing. It's not like he's just remembering, like he's forgotten and now he remembers, but he is volitionally choosing to go back and review who God is and how he has worked in his own heart. Verse 13, he reminds himself of God's character. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? God is holy. His way is lifted up. His way is set apart. It is incomprehensible. No one can be compared to Him. Who else can do what He does? Who else can give Him counsel? Who else can direct our paths like God does? The psalmist is encouraging himself by remembering who God, what God is like. Verses 14 and 15, it's like he reviews certain things in his life certain acts of God, and he finds encouragement by it. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Psalmist here reminds himself of what God has done for himself and for the people of Israel. How God has proved himself faithful over and over, So here he is, his life is kind of falling apart all around him, he's confused and he's lost and he's reaching for something to hold on to, and he reaches back to what God has done in his own past and reminds himself of that. I found this so moving that we we should take delight in our Scriptures, and that is so necessary and good, but we should also be able to review God's own working in our hearts and lives in the past and be encouraged by it. He has in his heart some monuments of the soul. There are some things that he, uh, some, some different events in his life that he can look back to and say, that was God's wondrous work in my life. And I can never forget that. I am going to choose to remember that. I'm going to choose to continually remind myself of that remembering how he has worked. And already, as he does this, you can kind of feel the, it working, how his language is a little bit more jubilant here. That in verses 14 and 15, how he be, his heart is starting to lift up. He's starting to be encouraged as he remembers what God has done. And when Danielle and I have been facing some of these difficult spots and um, in, in our ministry, we've been able to quiet our hearts and settle our hearts again by remembering all the wonderful things, the wondrous things that God has done. Uh, a few months ago, I sat in a kind of interview setting. It wasn't quite a formal interview, but it kind of turned into one. I was, I was sitting with a, an older gentleman, and we were talking, and he was looking for somebody to come and maybe give him a little bit of help, and we were looking for somebody to, to help us out with housing, and, and we were sitting there talking, and um, he's a very unique man. I, I've enjoyed getting to know him, but he, he was, he, what he said to me, he said, Clay, you know, I'm looking for somebody who is weathered, and you look like you're weathered. I said, okay, <laughs> thank you, right, I guess. <laughs> I, I attribute that to the four children. <laughs> no. 
You know, it, you know, I apparently looked physically weathered, but what he was looking for was he was, what he was asking and, and looking for was somebody who had seen the Lord work in, their, in, in, the, in the past. And one of, the, one of the great benefits of getting older is that you have this record of how God has worked in your own life that you can turn and look back to. You can open your journal and you can see some of these monuments of your heart and soul that God has done, and that, that's something that you can never get over, that God did this, and we rejoice in that. Let me just share with just one or two of them with you. You know, we have been in London for five years, a little over five years, and we have been under-supported the entire time. But we have always had an abundance, much more than what we have needed, because God has faithfully provided for us. We don't know how, and we, we can't organize it, we can't plan for it, but the Lord has always given us, and you have been part of that. We think back to the, the, when we were raising the funds to go over there, and Danielle and I still sit in, in awe and wonder of this, that we had to raise $50,000 for plane tickets and visas and our first couple of months of rent, $50,000. You know, I was making, at that time, maybe like $15 an hour, and while we were, before we started uh, on deputation, how long is it going to take us to save this up? And we were, how is the Lord going to provide this? And in one of our deputation meetings, we uh, were visiting, and uh, a, a couple came to us afterwards and said that they, they needed to talk to us. They might be able to help us out. And we, they told us about a f- couple of families out in California that we needed to go see. And these families, they had been in a rural place in California. They had been meeting together for several years, uh, praying that the Lord would send them a pastor um, because there was no church that, that they agreed with in the area. And they'd been meeting together, meeting together for those years. And, and that whole time they were tithing and they were giving their money to the Lord. And after a few years, they felt, you know what? We need to go and join this church, but what do we do with all of this money that we have been tithing and saving to pay for a pastor? It was their money, you know. It, they, if they would have just kept it to themselves, nobody would have known, but they had said, this is the Lord's money, and we want to use it to encourage somebody else. And I met with them for a few days, and then at the end of that, uh, those few days, he handed me a check for $50,000. It's tremendous. And we look back and we see God working in our own hearts and in arranging our steps. We think about, you know, as I mentioned, us going to London and not knowing where we're going to go. London, 10 million people that live there. It's, it's an area about the size of Greenville County, a little bit smaller. And we knew two people, <laughs> and they were on the other side of the city. Where are we going to go? Lord, where do you want us to serve? What church do you want us to be to, to assist and to help? You know, we had no idea. And in Lord's sovereignty, how he worked, he led us in about a five-minute walk away from the church that in about four months we would realize was there and we would partner with. You know, if you had told me, Clay, this is where you and Danielle need to be, this church, I could not have found a better home and a, and a better situation but we had no idea going in, but the Lord knew, and He directed our steps. And that church welcomed us, 
gave us ample opportunity to serve, gave us experience working in the culture. It was such a blessing. And even in this past year, as pastor came over and we we looked at our options, he has given us an opportunity that is uh, remarkable uh, to to replant a church where we have uh, so much uh, freedom to do it just as we have as we see the Scriptures. And again, we think this is the wondrous work of God, and we cannot forget it. We need to remind ourselves of it. But that's, a, that's our struggle, isn't it? Is that we are forgetful. We tend to forget what the Lord has done. And we have to practically remind ourselves of how God has worked wondrously in our own hearts and lives in the past, whether it be through journaling or through some other method. For us, it's through our prayer letters. We write one every few months or every few weeks, and we look back, Danielle and I look back, and we rejoice about how has God has worked and answered prayer. And it causes us to uh, be encouraged in some of these situations. But as a psalmist, as he is kind of, if you, if you imagine with me that he is flipping back in his scrapbook or his journal or whatever, it's like he comes to a certain page and then he stops. And he says, this is it. This, more than anything else, is what stabilizes me. And look at what he says in verse 16, this last stanza. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We must remember God, how He has His character, His works, but we must remember our, your deliverance. That's what the psalmist is uh, enamored with here. As, as he thinks back to his history as a, as a Jewish person the, through the history of Israel, he looks back to the greatest work, the greatest uh, point that he can look at that shows God's might and majesty. And it was the exodus. It was the deliverance from Egypt out of slavery through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. He looks back at that and he says, that above anything else shows me that God loves me, and that I can trust Him. And that's helpful for us to think about, you know, as we can imagine what it was like, as, as what He does here. The language is so artistic and vivid. He is, he, he's reliving this. He's putting Himself back in the shoes or the sandals of the Israelites. As they came through the Red Sea, He is remembering all of it, remembering what God did. And for that, it is an encouragement and it establishes him. It grounds him in this time of, di- of discouragement. And for us to think back through what God did in delivering the Israelites from slavery 
on their journey to the promised land, it can be an encouragement to us how He saved them. But there is now, as New Testament believers, there is something else that we can look back on to see God's deliverance that surpasses the might and the majesty of the Exodus. And it is the cross. As the, as the men sang about, it's still the cross. And we can look back to what God has done through our own deliverance from slavery, from sin. And that is the pinnacle of God's work. It's the work of the cross and what He did. And that's, as, as we approach the Easter and we start to meditate on what God did on Calvary for us, and allow that to encourage us and to uplift us as we review our own personal deliverance. If you are a believer this morning, God has done a miraculous thing in your heart. And we cannot get past it and we cannot forget it. And it has to continue to reverberate in our hearts. Think about that. Think about how God has saved you. If you are a believer this morning, how God has saved you. When He did that. Think about how He has cleansed you from sin. We are sinners. I am a sinner. A great sinner. And I pile up my sins higher and higher, yet God has wiped them all clean. That though they are scarlet, they can be as white as snow through what Christ has done on the cross. That I can have forgiveness full and free Because of what Jesus has done, that He has removed my sin debt, canceled it, and not only that, not brought me back to to innocence or zero, but He has justified me through what Jesus has done, that no longer am I a criminal, but I am viewed with Christ's righteousness, and righteousness that is not my own, that, that I have no right to, but is a free gift. Do you remember how God's righteous wrath has been satisfied? Have you thought about that? This week, as, as we consider what Jesus is, is, has accomplished for us, as, as, and as we celebrate that, that propitiation one, that God is no longer angry with me because of my sin. He is rightfully He was rightfully angry with me because my sin, it it stank in His nose. It was obnoxious to Him because He is so holy and I am so sinful. And He was right to be angry with me as sometimes it is right for me to be angry because of my children's disobedience. It is right because they they are sinful and they sin against me and against each other and it is right for me to feel some righteous anger towards them. But to have that anger wiped away as God's wrath was poured out on Christ instead of me. This is amazing. It is, it is encouraging. It is stabilizing when we find ourselves in situations that are so chaotic. To think that I have been given eternal life. That I no longer have to fear death. But death is a gateway to being with God. 
and enjoying His presence forever alongside all those who, who know Him. That is, that is mine. That is a privilege that I enjoy through Christ, and that was accomplished on the cross. That's when God's deliverance was portrayed so clearly, and for us, it, it is something that we need to continually remember. So as we come to the end of the psalm here, we see the, the personal touch there at the end that you led your people like a flock, that God is leading this man just like He led the Israelites through the wilderness, through the, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the promised land, like a shepherd by the hand of Moses and Aaron, that, that God is leading us. And as, as we kind of think about where, where, he, where the psalmist ends, one commentator says this, in the end, his problem is not solved. He's still hurting. You know, there's still grief in his heart. It's not like everything is just, now it's all, all better and he doesn't have to feel the hurt anymore. But rather, the problem dissolves in the light of a more profound experience of God. This model of seeking to remember God's goodness and deliverance in the midst of times of discouragement is helpful for us. It's a, it's a model that we can follow as believers. And it's a, a model that I think is portrayed for us in the song that you know well, It Is Well. Because that's what the Horatio Spafford, as he wrote that song, that's what he was doing. You probably know the background of the story. Let me remind you just very briefly. that He was a, a wealthy uh, a lawyer in Chicago and businessman. He and his family had decided to take a vacation in England. Uh, they were close friends with, with uh, D.L. Moody, and they were going to, to go to England. And he had sent his wife and his daughters ahead uh, to go on a transatlantic uh, cruise where he would take a, a boat passage through uh, the north of the Atlantic. And tragically, the boat sank, and he lost all his, his four daughters, I believe it was, in that as the boat sank. His wife alone survived. A few months later, Spafford is following to rejoin his wife in England. Having heard of this great tragedy, his heart is so broken and hurting and yet as he passes near that spot where that ship went down, he writes the words of that song, It Is Well. And what it says, though, is he doesn't look forward to reunion with them. He is taking encouragement through what Christ has accomplished in the cross. He says, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate, and shed His own blood for my soul. That's what, that's what encouraged Him. That's what stabilized Him. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And for us, in times of discouragement, do you cry out to God? Do you look to man to, to try and help you? Do you honestly voice your struggle? Do you open your heart to the Lord? Or do you stifle some of those thoughts down? 
Do you choose to remember how God has worked in the past in your own heart and life? Are you documenting that? Are you reminding yourself of it so you don't forget? And most of all, friend, is it true for you that you know Him? That this deliverance that we have been talking about is yours personally? That you have been born again? That you have repented and believed in what Christ has done for you in His death and resurrection? And that you can rejoice in the glory of the cross because what it has accomplished for you personally. So in these times when we despair, when we're discouraged, let this be a pattern that we follow to cry out to God, to open our hearts to Him and to remember who He is and to remember our own salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we rejoice that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and that we can have that forgiveness because of what Christ has done for us. And I know, Father, that there are some who inevitably are discouraged, maybe, because of the circumstances of life this morning. And I pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged as they meditate on what you have accomplished through the cross. I pray for some here who may not know you, that through your sovereign grace you would be drawing them, opening their eyes to salvation, and that we can rejoice together in what you have done. But we need your help, Lord. We are frail. We are forgetful. Help us to remember what you have done for us as believers, yes, in the cross, and, and all things after, how you have led us, how you have guided us, how you have blessed us. And let that be something that we can lash our hearts to in the storms of life. We make this prayer in Christ's name.